Everybody see that okay? Too well, probably. It's a mess up here. You can't see all the mess? And all God's people are like, whoa, it must really be bad. We can't see all of it. weeping prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations uh, chapter 3 gives us wonderful encouragement when he says to God remember my affliction and my wandering the wormwood and bitterness surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me this I recall to mind therefore I have hope the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the one who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Seek God's grace. Seek his power in his word tonight, so that he could inform us, tell us of himself what he wants us to know, and in reflection on that truth, we'll know how we should order our lives. Let's pray. Father, we pause tonight to reflect on your amazing grace, your wonderful kindness to us, because you have sent your Son. There is no greater thing that you could do for any one person, and you've done it for all of us. The greatest we could ever imagine is that you've given us your only begotten Son, so that we who believe in him will never perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life, your life right now, Father, that begins when we first trust in Christ and continues for all eternity. Thank you for opening that intra-Trinitarian fellowship, that relationship, that rapport from eternity past, which has obtained between you and your Son and your Spirit. And now you've brought us into this wonderful abode. And Father, tonight as we study the concept of Christian spirituality and Christian responsibility, help us to embrace the riches of this relationship, of this fellowship, of this walk in the light. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to open the scriptures this evening to Ephesians chapter 6. But don't settle in. Ephesians chapter 6. This high water mark of Pauline revelation, the letter to the Ephesians, which is really a letter to the churches of Asia Minor likely sent to all seven that we have in the book of Revelation 2 and 3. We have manuscript evidence of this to multiple locations, but uh, most often the manuscripts say to the Ephesians. The conclusion of the spiritual life discussion that was begun in chapter 5, verse 15, is uh, the household code, as we've discussed and all the relationships within an early first century Roman household are addressed. And the problem for all of those is the problem for all of our households, as we've said. It's the people in them. The people in those household relationships are the problem 
with the household relationships because they're sinful and they don't see their sinfulness because they're selfish and they don't see that they're selfish because the nature of the log poking out of our eyes is that we're blind to it. And somehow we're able to squint out and see someone else's little speck in their eye. But we're blind to that beam in our own eye. And I don't just mean me, where you can feel sorry for me about that. I mean us, we. And I don't just mean you, where I'm going to stand up here in the high pulpit and say, you. I mean us. It's a problem that we all face, and we can all say, yes, we're all struggling with it. Throw one other little factor into all of household relationships. We've said sinful people makes it bad. Now let's talk about how these relationships are structured. God, who's sovereign and has all the authority, has delegated authority into the household. And every household participant doesn't have the same authority. It's hierarchical. And now... Sin plus authority is a breakdown. It's awful. It's, dist- it's horrible. And this is why uh, we're going to know that the forerunner for Messiah has come when he has turned fathers to their sons and the hearts of sons to their fathers. There's been restoration in this repentance that John the Baptist called Israel to. The Old Testament, remember, ends with the household is broken And the forerunner, the one who designates Messiah, the one with the spirit of Elijah, this prophet who was going to come to pave the way for Messiah, that's Malachi 4, is going to turn the hearts of sons to their fathers and fathers to their sons. See, everywhere you go, this is a breakdown because of the fallenness of people. And so Paul is, in both Ephesians and Colossians, discussing one way God saves us. He's given us the Holy Spirit and the spiritual life. The Holy Spirit equips us to walk worthy of our calling. And even in household, even in the most difficult of relationships. Now, when you get to chapter 6, verse 5, the last household relationship is controversial to our culture, to our ears today, masters and slaves. The problem with us is that we think we've evolved We think that Western civilization has moved beyond and that we're past that. What do you call someone who lives in a cage, who is told when he will get up and when he will sit down, what he will eat, where he will go, until a term that has been completed in which he is free to make his own choices? What do you call someone in that circumstance? Oh, a prisoner. Where is that in the Bible? Where do you find someone with no self-determination whose all their personal needs are met, and then they are responsible to do whatever they're told to do by the people that are meeting those needs. There's no prison, or, prison in the Bible. There are cities of refuge for manslaughter where you have to go listen to the Levites. But it's, that's a far cry from what we have today as prisons. See, we say we have no slavery today. But someone who has fallen afoul of our legal system finds himself in a cage with people providing his meals, his health care, and his work. And he is accountable to those people. Well, that's not slavery. Those people are... What is it? I mean, it's a lot like slavery. If it's not, if it's not slavery, it's a lot like it. My point is that let's, get, let's be very careful about judging the Scriptures through our cultural perspective and letting our biases corrupt our, our view of what God's saying. His view, the scriptural view of slavery, is not end it now, except for what's really important, which is slavery to sin. Yeah, end that now. God's view of slavery is it's an undesirable institution. Get out of it as soon as you can. But when you find yourself in this authority structure, be a Joseph, as we saw last Wednesday. Joseph is your quintessential portrait of slavery. Now, here's the difference between the Bible and the world on this topic. The world says you are what your economic status labels you as. The world says, and our culture says, you are that. You are in that status quo. You are labeled by that. You're that caste. And like the Indian peoples, 
we, of India. We will not vi- violate caste. Once you're labeled that, that's what you are. And that's not what the scriptures say. Joseph is, uh, one morning he wakes up a slave and when he goes to sleep, he's the prime minister of the country. You're not supposed to label yourself that way. If humans have gotten confused and think that they own you, we should pity them. Because truly, God owns you. He made you in his image. And where you find yourself is where you're supposed to serve him. Well, I've spoken a lot about slaves and masters. It is the most undesirable of all possible circumstances I can imagine finding myself in, with a few noted exceptions that involve closed, confined spaces for long periods of time with, um, you know, biting insects or something. Like, I could think of worse circumstances than slavery, but not on a normal life style basis. I wouldn't seek it. And Paul says, don't seek it. But here, even if you find yourself in that confined situation where you don't have self-determination, don't worry about it. Whatever good thing you do in the circumstance you find yourself as you submit to those in authority over you, this you will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. That's Ephesians 6, 8. We said that's a totally different way of thinking about it. And you can't have this perspective about your circumstance unless you have the word of God richly dwelling within you. Unless God's thinking is real to you and you're thinking it on your own, and I mean, in his power, but in your situation, I can't do this for you. You have to think this way. When that reality, when that truth is real to you, and on the basis of that sense of the reality of God's provision, you go forward and you serve, trusting in God that he's going to make it count forever. It's a totally different way of thinking about life, and the world laughs at it. The wisdom of the world says this is foolish. The wisdom of Lenin and Marx is that you're just giving people the opiate of the masses. Religion tells people to let slavery continue so that you can store up treasures in heaven and i will be accused by teaching ephesians chapter six i haven't been that i know of but i don't care but right now i'm pretty strong i don't care but um i'll be accused of of uh reinforcing the status quo of oppression by saying god's instruction for the slave is to walk by the spirit and how he conducts his his work for god's sake His instruction to masters in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, I'm actually intending on setting up an illustration tonight using masters and slaves. And Roman slavery in the first century, a very undesirable institution to find yourself in. I'm seeking to use this hard concept to our ears as an illustration of uh, what Paul means, what the New Testament is talking about when it says that we know God's will. Knowing, knowing God's will. Where do I find that? Ephesians 5.15. Can you read that okay? Knowing God's will, Ephesians 5.15. Where we have some pretty awesome and explicit instructions. Therefore, be careful how you walk. How you walk, take care of your walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. I want you to pick up a couple of nouns. Walk, well, that's a verb, how you walk, and wise. Two, two, two words. The walk, that's the conduct of your life, and not unwise, but as wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil, so there's a sense of time, there's, a, there's, a, there's an urgency in verse 16. So then don't be foolish. Foolishness again, foolish versus wise. And understand what the will of the Lord is. Now I want to guess, excuse me, does anyone want to guess what um, uh, 
Um, well, I don't want to ask that question now. <clears throat> Understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, um, in general, in verses 15 through 17, it's given as a command. It's Paul issuing apostolic instruction. This is your responsibility. And how do I know? How do I know that as a believer today, 2019, that this is my responsibility? Well, I'm reading what Paul says, and he says, Be careful, look out, blepo, to look, take care, present active imperative, to look at my walk, to be careful about how I walk. How do I know that that's a responsibility for me? You ready? I'm a Christian. What does that mean? I belong to Christ. I have put on Christ. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. That's a Christian. So what do you so how does that mean? Why, why does verse 15 of Ephesians 5 therefore become binding on me? If I'm just a Christian, now we're all Christians. Why am I saying that this is absolutely binding for me to obey, to perform? Because the Apostle Paul says it, and he commands it. Now, he could have done it in a way that wasn't a command and said, here's a, here's a suggestion I have because I love you. I take those as commands too when Paul says that. But when Paul issues a directive, if I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to submit to it. Now, why in the world is that? Anybody have a one-word suggestion as to why I have to take what Paul says as a directive and make it binding on myself? That's the one word. Who said that? I can't believe you think like I think, Mike. Now, sometimes I do ask you to play, what am I thinking? Right? Sometimes I do. You're like, hopefully you think I ask you that all the time because I do. But think about this. Paul is issuing these commands, these directive after directive after directive. Who is he to me that I need to do what he says? He's someone with the authority to say. So now I'm supposed to think that I'm under orders to actually do what is stated by the apostle. And... Um, I think we should all, every one of us, individually, we should take it very personally. I'm a Christian. I'm under Christ. And therefore, those that he's delegated over me, I'm under them too, in Christ. So I'm going to submit to the apostles, those sent by Jesus, who are promised in John chapter 14 that, and, and 16, what they had been taught by him, that they would remember, so that they would be able to teach accurately and make disciples. Now, what is it, what did God do for me? While we're playing, what am I thinking? Let's think together on this. What did God do for us that connects us to the authority of the apostles? They're all dead. How in the world can I say, because I am under the apostles, I'm going to do what they say? How is that possible today? Pastor, the pastor told us, is that how? Does it come to me? Have you all come to the church? No. Not scripturally. You are the church. Those called out. The ecclesia. The called out. The assembly. That's what church means. So how is it that Paul has connected himself to me in an authoritative way that I can actually do what he says? Does anybody know and you're just all waiting for someone to blurt it out? You're at the back row back there, they're like, we, we think it's rhetorical because it's obvious, right? We know what you're, what you're asking. They wrote it down. You see what I'm, what I'm trying to say here? This is what the New Testament is. It's the scriptures. It's not just a book that someone bound together and you have it in Bible. Well, it's, it's the book. We know it's good because there's gold edge paper. 
So we have to listen. Look, there's even got markers. And someone killed an animal to put around it. Cow, cow, or whatever this is. Cow. I don't know. I just... <laughs> That's pretty funny. What I'm trying to say is that if I ask Americans on the street, what do they know about slavery? They'll give me a bunch of stuff, maybe. If I ask uh, history teachers, you know, high school history teachers, what do they know about slavery? They'll give me something. They'll tell me something. If I then take the group of people with the consensus view in our culture what slavery is, and then we look at what Ephesians chapter 6 from the Apostle Paul says about slavery, they'll say, this seems to miss the point. The point isn't that you serve well in the institution of slavery. The point is that you stop the, uh, the institution itself, that you get rid of this. We have to throw off the yoke of slavery. I am Spartacus. Get rid of the slavery. And I like that. But it's not how Paul says it. It's not what he says to do. And it's not because Paul is just accommodating the culture. It's because rearranging the furniture for 80 years of this life doesn't get you eternal reward and eternal inheritance. You are actually citizens, not of the household you're in or the nation you're born to. You're citizens of heaven. I mean, of the kingdom of God. This coming kingdom. And you're being trained when whatever circumstance you're in, you're being groomed to rule with the Lord Jesus Christ in this coming kingdom. If I believed that we were bringing the kingdom, I would be very militaristic about enforcing God's instructions. But we're not. We're not bringing the kingdom. Jesus Christ brings it. He will bring it. You know what's the greatest insight about the future things is Revelation 19, Jesus coming back, is before Revelation 20, when Jesus rules. And it's coming. And this is, your, this is where you need to think about really losing the yoke of bondage. But we have apostles of deceit for the last, I don't know, 60 or 70 years in our country anyway, who will say, no, 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 you are reinforcing the status quo by saying it's not about the, the structure of society, it's about the individual walk with the Lord. And I, believe me, I've got my manifesto I can write about how, structure, how society should be structured. You could re, what I think is, and if I don't think it yet, it's because I haven't read it yet, but just read Thomas Sowell on economics. You'll know what I, I think right looks like in our economics. Read the Federalist Papers for why we, we have the, the government structure the way we have it. These kinds of things. But this isn't, that's all, that's the furniture. That's how you arrange it. You as an individual believer who belong to the coming kingdom are being trained to rule with Jesus Christ in it and trust him. And so that's the focus that Paul is teaching when he teaches the spiritual life. Now, again, that's my illustration of knowing God's will. Is it God's will for us to make the issue the social structures? Or is it God's will to make the issue the gospel message, eternal life, making disciples of all the nations, regardless of how they've arranged the furniture? See, that's, that's the question. And I think knowing God's will, I can take uh, one of two approaches pretty much. I can say this is what I think based on my culture, my, the, the surroundings I grew up in, the worldview that I'm kind of raised in, and, and take that, what I conclude about what's important and say that's the issue, or I can take God's word and say he has said, and I need to be calibrated and constantly adjusted and reinforced and reformed. Is it a hard process? If you're way over here and the word of God is over here, is it hard to go from here to here? It's a long walk. It's a hard thing to ask someone who's thoroughly steeped in godlessness and rearranging today's furniture 
and letting them see that this is, this is a satanic ruse. This is a distraction from God's mission in his word. And that's what we're called to do. That's the, that's the task at hand. Knowing God's will. I want to make a proposal here. I think you'll like it. A little diagram for you. Let's say that the will of God doesn't mean what he's already decided, but it's what he wants. Can you go with that on a conceptual thing? I can do the word studies with you of theleo and thelema, the words for will. And if not always, then almost always when we're talking about God's will, it isn't his eternal decree that he's already decided. And so you're supposed to guess what that is, which I believe in the eternal decree. It's stated his desires. It's what he wants. And we, we get this theological vocabulary in our mind. We read will and we're like, that's God's decisions. And I want to challenge you that you're, not, you're never ever told to know the secret things that God hasn't told you. Nowhere in scripture does God say, you haven't got the code book yet. And you need to squint your eyes and meditate more and, and wait until the bell rings and you know. That's not how the Bible presents it. It's words aligned in sentences and paragraphs where the meaning resides from the author's intent. And he gives it to you in poems and in songs and in stories, narratives, genealogical charts, all the different types of literature we find in the Bible. God is telling you what he wants, who he is how you're supposed to think. Let's say that the Scripture way is we start with God. Is that visible? That's evident? Okay. And God sent His Son, Jesus. I mean the Father and the Son. I don't mean, um, I'm not talking about eternal generation. I'm just saying, God has information and he sent Jesus the word as the self-disclosure, as God's revelation to man. In Matthew 4 and verse 1, we're told something very exciting about the ministry and life of Jesus. It says, and Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Isn't Jesus God in the flesh? Absolutely. But in his humanity, he is being led by the third person of the Trinity, by the Holy Spirit. And so the Father has sent the Son, empowered in his, in his humanity by God the Holy Spirit. Right there. The Spirit equips the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. Jesus carries a message that many, many times in the book of John, in the gospel of John, he says, I'm not speaking from my own ideas. These aren't my words, but the words I heard my father saying, these are the words I'm saying. So the father has sent the son with a message. The son has disclosed that message to whom? The disciples. And once they were weaponized, I mean sent. What do we call those disciples? They switched their name tags. Hello, my name is the disciple. And they changed it. They said, oh, need a new name tag. Hello, my name is the apostle. The apostles. So I'll just skip the disciple part to apostles. They were trained and then they're apostles. Jesus is, uh, the Spirit is working in Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit is given to the apostles. Where does that happen? Where does, the, where does it say the Holy Spirit was given to them? Jesus prophesied in uh, John 7, streams of living water will well up in those that believe in me. And then John seven thirty nine. this he's speaking of the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because he'd not yet been glorified. See, the promise of the Holy Spirit is a big part of the upper room discourse. Jesus teaching prophetically about what's coming in the age we live in now. Now, all you know, the, the upper room discourse is John chapters 13 through 17, the gospel of John 13 through 17. And so the Holy Spirit is influencing and working in the Lord Jesus and his earthly ministry. And the Holy Spirit is 
now working in the apostles in their earthly ministry, just as the Lord Jesus Christ promised in the upper room discourse. We know that the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, was working in all of the prophets of the Old Testament. This is a special ministry of the Spirit. Just a few people in the Old Testament were given any work by the Holy Spirit where He is filling them and working in them. It's a, it's a, it, the difference is today, um, it's for all believers, but back then it's very small, 1% or less of the people. The prophets were carried along by the Spirit of God in 1 Peter 1. And so what the prophets wrote, they got from God the Holy Spirit. This is, I'm, I'm trying to diagram for you a, a theology of the New Testament. What is the New Testament? The Holy Spirit equips the apostles, the, he equipped the apostles to say exactly what he wanted them to say prophetically so that just as all Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, just like for the prophets, as Paul is talking about the Old Testament in 2 Timothy 3.16, I think this applies to everything we have from the apostles, the inspired Scriptures that we have in our New Testament. And so the Holy Spirit has worked in the apostles and they have written what they have written. And now we have this wonder of wonders, this thing that no one who ever wrote any scripture ever held in his hand. We have a completed Bible. We have what God wants us to know, the word of God. This is how we got it. It's from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the New Testament. It's from the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, explicitly, New Testament. What about those writers of Scripture that are not apostles? Anybody know any of those? Luke. Luke wrote a third of the New Testament in Luke and Acts. And yet, he's not an apostle. So how can we say it's apostolic? Luke is with Paul. I think it's in Luke 19 when, when Luke says, and then we when he's talking about Paul, because Paul picked him up and now they're traveling together. Luke is Paul's associate. Paul is superintending Luke's work. Paul didn't write a gospel. Paul supervised Luke and Acts. Okay. What about Mark? Mark's not an apostle. John Mark. He's not one of the 12 and not, not Paul, one untimely born. You've got the 12 to the Israel and then one to the Gentiles. God has a great sense of humor in terms of the apostles. So what happens with John Mark? He's working for Peter. He's, he is being supervised by Peter, apparently. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we have God-taught words with God-taught people. Spirituality is where the Holy Spirit, again, is working in us the Word of God, where it's about the Spirit teaching us what He has inspired all along. He's been bringing this information all through this process of inspiration so that now when it's time for us to learn the Word, He is illuminating us. And that's second, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2.14. God taught words. Let me pull it up. Thirteen. Paul says, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in the, those words, God taught words by God's Spirit, by, in, in those taught by the Spirit. And he says, combining spiritual with spiritual. I think consp- combining spiritual information with spiritual persons. And so the Holy Spirit is still superintending this process where we come to know God. We come to know the things of God. I would never challenge you to seek to know God through his word, through the Bible, disconnected from the spirit of God. I would never suggest you do that. I would never, on the other hand, seek information from God, the spirit, apart from the absolute certain thing that he's already told us from the apostles and prophets. This seems to be God's protocol, this orange Christmas tree shape I've drawn up here. (laughs) This seems to be God's protocol way for us to know his will. Those who claim to be prophets today, when asked, do you mean like these prophets? They say, oh no, 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 no. We mean a lesser prophet. 
But when we actually look in the Scriptures at what prophets did, we wrote down what they said because the Word of God came to them and it's the prophetic Word. That's, that's what the Bible is. It's the prophetic Word written down. So I, I, have a, I have a quibble, a little more than a quibble, with modern prophecy that claims to be independent of Scripture as a secondary source of information. This is the idea of Christian mysticism, and I don't like it. I reject it. This seems to be God's protocol way. This seems to be the path to know His will. What's the alternative path that's proposed? When people, for some interesting reason, people that don't read the Bible much and don't know God very well, think that when it says, know the will of God, that it's this. Me, having things that occur to me and then blaming it on God the Holy Spirit. That's where I got it. I'm trying to diagram Christian mysticism. This is just a, a, a trial and error way to live your life. You don't have any certainty on this. And I, we have the scriptures. We have God's word where he told us exactly what he wants. This is why my Pentecostal friends will tell me that you've spent way too much time learning how to read Greek and Hebrew because the Holy Spirit will just tell you what to say. Where'd you get that? Well, there's a verse in Matthew. He'll just tell you what to say. You don't have to work. I love to go through that passage in Matthew 11 and talk about what he's actually discussing. And I believe in it with all my heart. But... I believe in what Matthew's actually talking about, what Jesus is telling them about, not the rejection. This turns out to be a rejection of the Word of God. If I could just have God just tell me stuff, everybody needs to sit around me in a circle and start writing. I'm going to start holding forth. And I, I guarantee you, I'm not going to have any of these New Testament names for my books. Corinthians. I'm going to, I, I, I got some really good ideas for titles for my new thing, like the pearl of great price or, or the secret or my favorite science fiction, the Book of Mormon or um, all kinds of new revelations. See, that's what, that's what new revelation is. Every time you can point to someone who's got God's word that he came to me in a dream or as an angel or something and we write it down, what do you have? You've got one of these offshoot things that we, we can look at and say, wait a second, we're going to test the spirits and this doesn't pass muster. This isn't what God is saying. So I, I, I'm not accusing everyone who does this way of coming to think they know God's will. I'm not accusing people uh, that, that, that mainstream Christianity. I'm not saying that mainstream Christendom that's semi, semi-mystical, that they're cultists. I'm saying that when we actually ask the questions about what prophecy is and how you come to know things when God told me, are you saying like Samuel was in his bed and God said, Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up and goes over to um, Eli's bed and says, yes, you called me. He heard God say to him, Samuel, Samuel. This is not liver quiver. This is not some sort of intuition that I have that all of a sudden I just feel this, I don't have peace. My favorite decision-making proto- protocol that I've heard of that, to reject is the peacemaking uh, protocol. If you'll turn please to Philippians chapter 4. It's a quick trip from Ephesians 6 over to Philippians 1 page. Philippians 4. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, like all the others. Um, when I say it's one of my favorites, it's, what I mean is I think I understand it. And I think I understand exactly how it applies, and it's so exciting. And so um, you could say, don't you understand all the Word? 
No. I have no idea what to do with Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10, except to say someday we are going to see what Ezekiel saw. All right. Can you, can you tell me, when you look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, what God's will is? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. What is God's will for you? It is for you to rejoice in the Lord, not in your situation, not in your trouble, not in your household brokenness, but rejoice in the Lord when always, again, I say rejoice. I think that's God's will in Christ Jesus for you. Uh, That's exactly how Paul talks about uh, giving thanks for everything in 1 Thessalonians 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is near. What is God's will for you in Philippians 4, 5? That people would know that we're gentle, our gentleness. I have to work on that. I get excited. And when I feel excited about something, sometimes, I've been told at times, you have a face, Dave. It looks like you're angry. That's, that's, talk about mixed messages. I'm trying to send excitement and people are registering anger. Let me see if I can dra- dramatize that a little bit. Don't you love the Lord? Anyway, uh, <laughs> you don't want to see me angry. Like, we don't want to see you excited. <laughs> but God's will for you in Philippians 4, 5 is to let people know by your conduct that you're gentle. The, spirit, the, the fruit of the spirit of gentleness. What's God's will for you in Philippians 4, 6? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. What's his will for you? To not worry about your situation, but to, again, in rejoicing in the Lord, take it to him and bring your request to him. That's God's will for you, according to the Apostle Paul of the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 4, 6. And what does God want to do for you? What is his desire on your behalf? What blessing is he standing by to give you in verse 7? And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So if I bring my request with thanksgiving, there's always got to be that thank you for the hardship. It does hurt. But I bring my request with thanksgiving. He promises to bring peace. And I can tell you directly what God's will, what God wants for you in these kinds of directives. They're commands all through the New Testament. I know what God's will is for me. I know what His will is for you. Now, these are general statements. Everything, nothing, all times, right? These are general things. But we say, well, every specific situation in my life fits into these general statements, And so my favorite is when you make a general statement like this and people say, well, what about this thing? I'm like, well, let's go back to the general statement. Does this cover everything? Yep. Is this part of everything? Yeah, this is one subset of everything. Yep. Got to rejoice in this one. You have to thank him for this one. You have to bring your request about this thing. Oh, well, I can't go to this church. (laughs) This church reinforces these bad things that happened to me. No. No, we just see how the scriptures apply to them and taste and see that the Lord is good is the, is the idea. In other words, functional atheism doesn't really work when you come to want, wanting what God wants for you in Philippians 4. Now, I just walked through what God's will for you is in Philippians 4, 4 through 4, 7. Where in that did we find a protocol or a paradigm for making decisions to figure out what the decree of God is about my choices? But here's what people do. If I don't feel peace, then I don't have my answer yet. So I go back in prayer and ask God, and I make a decision, and then I'm the fleece. I'm throwing a fleece like Gideon, and I'm going to see if I feel peace. I'm going to buy the yellow car. Oh, I don't feel peace about that. Must be the blue car. Well, hey, go try it with the other one. And it's a very, see what you end up with is this very subjective thing that, well, I don't have peace. How is my inner peace any way connected to establishing what God wants or doesn't want? I think the slavery discussion in Ephesians 6, I think most mainstream Bible-ignorant Christians would say, this makes me very uncomfortable and I just do not have peace about it. Right. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 makes people blush because they're, they're, they're corrupted. 
and they, and they believe in sexual libertinism. Well, it doesn't matter who you love. We should never be preaching about people loving uh, the wrong person. They can't love the wrong person. You should love anybody you want to love. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that kind of love, that eros for the wrong person forfeits inheritance. Forfeits your eternal inheritance, it says, somehow. But such were some of you, he tells the Corinthians. See, my peace isn't the determinant of God's will. But if I submit to God's will in first, or sorry, Philippians 4, 6, then in verse 7, he gives me peace. So I think we're getting that backwards. And I love, I love brothers and sisters that, do, that try to do that. Let's talk about God's will in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, arete, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What's the command of God? What's His will for you from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.9? To fix your attention on the things of God. I believe that that conscious, intentional focus on the things of God in verse 9 is fellowship with God. It is partaking. Fellowship doesn't mean I'm, I'm good. It means I'm enjoying something in common with someone. It's a common meal. It's a fellowship meal. That's the picture of fellowship. So um, if you think that you're going to make decisions based on whether you have peace or not, I agree with you to a point, but I don't get into out of Philippians 4. Is that fair? If your conscience is bothering you, that's not what Paul's talking about. But if your conscience is bothering you, thank God for it and tell him, help me sort this out. I need wisdom. Help me understand. That's a good thing to do. Absolutely. Go back to the scriptures. Go back to God in prayer. Get some sleep. Drink some water. Okay? And, and take care of, of the whole person. But, but he's not talking about making decisions in Philippians 4. He's talking about these are the decisions you need to say yes to because this is God's will for you. And that's a better way, I think, to approach the commands of Scripture than turning them into a genie to figure, or a magic eight ball to figure out what I'm supposed to do. If your conscience bothers you, there's a reason it bothers you. If you don't have peace about something you're supposed to do, it's because you're not connecting the situation to the Word of God and your heart knows it. You're bothered. Your conscience, part of your inner person, your heart is, is conflicted, corrupted. And, and it's ringing. It's a, it's a buzzer. It's gone off and said, there's something wrong here. And it may be, I, I don't know enough to know what's wrong. I just know something's wrong. And, and prayer, it's time to pray. But we're asking for wisdom, and then we're going back to what God says. This is why the commands to know God's will. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. In my opinion, is about this. What the Holy Spirit does through the illumination of the Scriptures more than about this. I won't pay attention to the scriptures. I will not spend time and do the work to know what God means by what he says. And it's challenging. It's hard to do. I picked some easy ones tonight. It's good to do that, by the way. Paul has all kinds of easy things he says. There's lots of hard things too, Peter. 2 Peter 3.16. Some of Paul's stuff is hard. Some of his stuff is very easy, like Philippians 4. But I don't think this is what he means when he says, know the will of God. I don't think it's what he means when he says that God teaches us spiritual words of spiritual persons in 1 Corinthians 2.13. I don't think Christian spirituality looks like this. I think it looks like the illumination of the Spirit through the Scriptures in submission to God, His Son, and the power of His Spirit, recognizing we're under the apostles. I think that is the way the Bible presents it. Again, Colossians 3.16 Spirituality in Colossians 3 isn't described as being filled by the Spirit. I think it is, but it's not described that way. It's letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within me. I need to finish my, my picture, don't I? Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.18. Be filled by the Spirit. Let the Word of Christ 
richly dwell within you. The more I submit to God and I go to the word in that submissive spirit, God, let me know you, let me know what you want. The more my conscience will be calibrated to think like he thinks, to be concerned about the things he's concerned about. Have you looked back on your life? Let's say you've been a Christian for, some of you are veterans. Some of you are long veterans, 20-year, 30-year Christians. Think about what you were thinking and worried about 15 years ago and the kinds of things you got hung up on 20 years ago. And where you are now about some of those things. Sometimes we look back at some decisions we made and say, God was faithful and gracious despite my ignorance. Oh, my, my soul, what I was worried about then and what I'm worried about now, I, I mean, concerned about as I look in the scriptures. Changes doesn't as we grow. We put away childish things and we grow spiritually and we, we concern ourselves for what God is concerned about. Let's go to Colossians 1. Most of chapter, well, the first half of chapter one is the prayer Paul has for the Colossians. Paul doesn't thank God on behalf of the Colossians because of their cheery smile, their rosy glow, the way they say, my dear brother and sister. It's not externals. Paul is rejoicing on and, and glorifying God on the Colossians account because they're real Christians who are really in the word and they're really producing the fruit of the spirit or God is producing that in them and he can see it. Verse three of Colossians one, we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So the fruit of the spirit is love. So they're believers who are really walking. They're Christians in uh, 1 John 4 who are really in fellowship with God. They're really walking, 1 John 1, in the light, as he is in the light because they're love for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul throws a parenthesis around some stuff sometimes. He's in the middle of the thing and then he, he's got this long explanation. You can put a parenthesis around it and it makes more sense. But that just happened to us. Verse 6 has a parenthesis, doesn't it? The gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. He's, now he's talking about the gospel, but his topic is why he's thankful to God for the Colossians, they've received the gospel, believed in Christ, they're walking by the Spirit, and therefore loving all the saints. This is John 13, 34, and 35. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, pastor, that says bondservant in our New American Standard uh, paraphrase. Well, the problem with that is that the word is soon doulos, and it means fellow slave. Well, but, but they were in a bond servant status in Roman slavery. It means someone owns you. Let's don't soften that. Jesus owns us. He owns Epaphras. He owns me. We're fellow slaves of Christ. It's awesome when you think about that the problem with slavery is that someone else claims to own you. Well, if the person is Jesus, that's awesome. If it's anyone else, that's awful. So let's, let, let's embrace the language. Slaves of Christ, but fellow slaves of Christ, who is a faithful servant of Jesus Christ on our behalf, he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So we have a report in this Thanksgiving portion of my prayer. It's a report from the one who taught you. Apparently, Epaphras is their pastor, or one, of the, one who's pastoring them, and he's taught them about the Word of God. It's apostolic because Epaphras has been taught by one of the apostles or one of their disciples. And so he's trained and he's teaching them what it is to walk as a Christian in this spirit-empowered love, and they're doing it. And so he informed us, and so Paul, so he has a report. It's kind of a missionary thing. Pastors get together. So how's it going with the church? Great. Really? Must be really cold up there in Connecticut. We always think about y'all up so, so cold up in Connecticut. It only snowed once, and that was like in October. 
that's what I could say this year when I talked to the Texans about um, how cold and awful it is in Connecticut. But see, the, the pastor's report for Epaphras to Paul is these people love each other and they love all the saints because they have the Spirit of God in them and the Word of God. It's really, the work is really happening. And the measurement is their love for one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and ask God. Now what does Paul, I'm going to be done with this thing and put this up on the screen. What does Paul ask for these people? In verse 9. Since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What in the world is Paul going to do to further that request he has to God on their behalf? He's going to write Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 through the end of chapter 4. He's going to give them the Word of God, and they're going to read it and reflect on it and read it and reflect on it, and 2,000 years later, we're reading it and reflecting on it. That's what the Word of God is. It's the knowledge of His will. And it, it does no good to sit here in, in a book. It has to be in me. And then th- th- this is the amazing thing that people don't get. I'm not some sort of mystical receptor for, for extra biblical revelation. I'm the receptacle for the Word of God that transforms me, calibrates me, and helps me think like He thinks. And love like He loves and want what he wants he may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the lord what's wrong with the church of our lord jesus christ in the world today they don't know what he says so they don't know what he wants so they don't walk like he wants them to walk that's the problem that's the problem through the whole world in the state churches, oh my soul, look at what's going on in the Church of England. Don't look too long. See, if you don't have the Word of Christ richly dwelling within you, then you don't have the filling of this knowledge of His will and all wisdom and under, spiritual wisdom and understanding, and you have no way of knowing how to walk worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is why we teach. This is why we teach. This is why Paul says in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders, I commend you to God, to the word of His grace, which will build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. These believers need to receive the inheritance. They need to be grown and built up spiritually, and it's the word of God that does it. So you'll walk in the manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. See, we're not just trying to know know stuff. We're trying to know God. And then when it's time to make a decision, we're making the decision He wants me to make. Not because He says, hurry, turn right, or hurry, turn left. That's not how it works. My conscience is calibrated by the Word, and I'm asking the question in prayer, Father, how do I worship You with this choice? How does this fit into what you've told me? Help me think through what I know of your word. Help me remember what you've taught me. Help me think of it your way. That's the way to th- And it's very simple. Love one another. Be on mission. Make disciples of all the nations by evangelism and, ba- and, uh, and teaching. This is what we're called to do. This, it's, a, it's a simple answer once you start asking what's the, worship, what's the worship choice to make. And what's the effect of this walking worthy and increasing in knowledge, strengthen with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. See, that's the testing phase where this maturity will be constantly proven and tested through suffering under which I patiently and joyously give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Christian way of life will never be separated from the power of the Spirit in the Word of God. It'll never be just the Spirit, and it'll never be just the Word. It will be knowing God's will from what He's told us in the power of His Spirit. And we're rich in our time in which we live. Let's 
Let's take advantage of the wealth, I mean, of the Word of God, that we have it, we're free to read it, to study it, to teach it, to spend time in it. Let's value it and think of it as it is. There are people throughout the world who will never have the wealth you have in terms of access to the Word of God. So let's cherish it. And you've done so tonight by taking some time to think through the spiritual component of knowing the will of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your will, for your revelation of your expectations for us, for giving us the privilege to know we can say what our Father in heaven, what Abba wants for us. We know what you want. You want us to grow spiritually through our discerning and tested intake of your word. You want us to grow spiritually that as we take it in and we internalize what you've said, as your spirit enables us to think these things and metabolize these things, you make us able to perform, to serve, to walk worthy of our calling. Father, we'll never deserve it. It'll be your grace from beginning to end. And we ask you to continually remind us to make these decisions in terms of what pleases you, what your son has communicated that he expects of us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.